Coffee with Humans is live, candid conversations between strangers who become friends. Made possible with your support. Subscribe, share, and comment on your favorite platform. Get Coffee with Humans mugs and more. Links are at coffeewithhumans.com. Thanks for joining me. We're live here again with Coffee with Humans today with my new friend, Chris. Chris, welcome to Coffee with Humans. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Now, before the broadcast, uh, you said that you were in France. Is that true? That is true. I'm in the north of France. The north of France. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's amazing. So I'm in northern Illinois. Uh, so for our listeners and viewers, we are on opposite sides, nearly opposite sides of the world. Not totally. But we both but... have access to good coffee. We... <laughs> that's true. Your coffee might be better than mine. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've never had coffee in France. I've, I've, I'm from Detroit originally, and I've been to Chicago lots of times. So, uh, yeah, I know you guys got good coffee. Okay. All right. Well, I, and, and we have I, good coffee, maybe even the same stuff. I mean, from the same countries <laughs> in the end, I mean, like Ecuador. And all well, those that's places true. That coffee. <laughs> that's true. I did a trivia one time. Uh, oh, what was the trivia? Something like where, um, <laughs> something, something like I don't know. Coffee began in the Middle East, I guess. It was, that's where it first that's where it first started. It was just this little sliver of of uh, an area where coffee was first uh, was first cultivated, which is an interesting trivia point for me because that's not where we get our coffee from now. Yeah, that's true. I didn't know that either, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, but you're right. We we probably do get our coffee from essentially the same locations in the world. But that's yeah. I don't know. So what are you doing in France? Oh man. So I got to France in a, in a weird way and it ended up being because of a girl. That's the root of the end okay. of this, but uh, uh, it was totally, totally an accident. I'd actually, I'd actually lived in France before. In, in 2002, I ran a, a small wine company out of France. Oh, wow. So, uh, and then I left France going, I never want to go back to that country. Really? <laughs> and then I'm back here again, but I'm in the North part. They have beer here, not wine. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know a little, I know very little about France. I've been to Italy. I've been to Albania, um, but I've not been to France. It, it's a great country to visit. Um, the little known fact of where I am is that they love beer, French fries, and mussels, steamed mussels. Oh. And it's right by the Belgian border. And okay. they, they just, they have, I mean, really, if you like, if you're a beer person, then mm-hmm. the north of France in this area is like one of the best places in the world. So characterize why is it one of the best places in the world for beer? Is the beer different somehow? So the variety is massive. I, people think Belgium has got really good beer. So Belgian beer is known mm-hmm. to be really good, but it's actually the Flanders area. That's I mean, Belgium does has good beer, but the Flanders area, which is also extending into where I am, is is that area that's really a beer place. So you just have every variety possible, and then it's like a big artisanal thing. So the 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 variety is very good. The you can have really dark, rich, but also sweet beers. I mean, it's okay. it's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And then of course they add mussels and good fries, <laughs> which I you know I I I would guess that mussels and fries along with beer is a pretty good combination. I mean, really I know is. that fries are, but I've never, I've honestly never had mussels and beer. It's really good, and they can even steam the beer in the mussels in beer. So oh, beer so steamed mussels. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And they make their French fries different too. So we're used to kind of square fries and they make them, it's not really like a a half moon or quarter moon shape, but it's something like that. And it's pointy. So you get this like crisp edge on both sides and then you get like a really soft, um, like meaty interior. So it's, and you can scoop ketchup or mayonnaise here very easily with it because it kind of like has a spoon like characteristic to it. So yeah, yeah, good, good fries. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds pretty intriguing. So the it's not what people steamed. think of France about, right? I mean, no, not at all. French, but <laughs> none of this rings of, of France. The stereo, <laughs> the stereotypical France, right? That we would expect. So, what's the coffee scene like? How do you uh, coffee shops, Starbucks? What's the what's that like? So we just got a Starbucks like two years ago, but we had a kind of a local Starbucks um, here. But then there's also like just independent coffee shops. And the coffee place I used to go to was run by, because now COVID, so they're closed, but he was run by the guy who actually got second place in the world in coffee tasting. He's number one in France. He got second in the world. He's from, he's actually a Belgium guy that lives in France. And he had a coffee place uh, called Coffee Makers. And 
or that he worked at the coffee place coffee. And they used to make their own, they used to roast their own coffee beans and, and they just made great coffee. So I'd go there every morning and have my coffee there. So it, that's what do you, good coffee machine. What do you know about this coffee tasting thing? How do you get second place in the world? What, what is the competition of coffee tasting? Do you know? Yeah, I, I don't fully understand everything that they do. I just see them every day with these lines of little coffee cups and they're like sipping them like wine and, and then making notes about them. And, um, wow. but I, yeah, I guess it has to do with some, maybe something of the way that it's roasted or something. They have to pick the characteristics of the different coffees and yeah, it's really, it's really weird. It's very much like wine tasting. When you watch wine tasters, coffee tasting, the process looks to me very similar, except they use a spoon instead of a, instead of drinking out of a glass. Oh, interesting. I see. I, this is good. I'm getting schooled on, on the world of coffee, which is super fun. It's so it sounds to me, it's like, um, like if you were to go order a, like a flight of beers, uh, it's kind of like, well, they, they give these tasters a flight of coffees and then, uh, I maybe identify, like you're talking about the characteristics or maybe even the locations of where the beans came from or something like that. Is that, I don't know if they do the locations. I think I, I, I so I'm, I'm like, now I'm guessing, cause I've just, I've watched him do it and I've asked some questions. Um, but they, they kind of, um, they're brewing all these different things. And I don't know if it's like the, the type of roast and the roast times and the characteristics of the roast, if it's something like that. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I watched the competition, but it was all in French and I didn't understand half of it because, you know, the guy I knew was in there. So it was like, I got it. Please see. Right. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, it still baffles me, but they're also doing it different. Like I love cappuccinos. So I like to put milk in mm -hmm. my coffee which destroys the coffee for those guys. I mean, they're like yeah. putting it through filtered things. And they're doing all the special things to really enjoy the coffee. And I'm like, well, I put my milk in there, hot milk. So, uh, so I guess they don't necessarily, they sell it to me. They're happy to sell it to me, but I destroy their coffee in the end. My cappuccino. <laughs> well, I, I use the Italian mocha pot, uh, for oh, most nice. of my coffee. That's my, that's my morning go-to. I've got a three cupper, which is like three ounces. I mean, it's not right. It's like three espresso shots. Um, but it, it is such a dark, deep, dark, rich cup of coffee that when I go back to my pour over, which I also enjoy, or don't, it's, it's crazy, but I found a uh, percolator, like an old Corningware per percolator from, I don't know, 70 somethings. Uh, and I use that once in a while. Cause it, cause it can, it can brew a deep, dark, rich cup of coffee as well. Um, but that, but that mocha pot just stands out. It's just got a, there's a richness to the coffee, which is difficult to obtain in any other way. Yeah. Italians know their coffee. <laughs> they do. And it, and they know the, the, the coffee makes a difference for sure. I've tried a lot of different types of coffee types of coffee rather in that mocha pot. And, uh, whether you're ordering, uh, like I, I do cafe Bustello, uh, which is usually comes in a, on a brick of coffee. That's a really super good one. Um, uh, cafe Cavinia. Uh, I've come to really like that. It's really got a, it's high quality coffee at a reasonable price. And then there's Lavazza, which, you know, you, you gotta sell a kidney for, uh, in the, you know, in the, do, do you want to hear something really bad? Do you want to hear something? Lavazza is the cheap stuff here. Right. And no, I know. Yeah, oh. Isn't that, it's terrible. Well, that's like the mocha pots because, you know, you get, you get a, like a, just a, a t you know, a basic Italian mocha pot. Uh, you could buy them in Italy for, you know, virtually nothing, you know, the equivalent of like $5 or less. Yeah. Uh, and then you get, and then you go to the States, right. And it's like $35 or, you know, $50 for this mocha pot. You're like, what are you doing? People yeah. don't know. Just do your yeah. research and find a, the, like, you know, find, find a good, uh, find a good pot, find a good coffee. Yeah. The, I think one of the big things is you go to the U S and you buy this stuff. And it's, it's, it is European. I mean, Lavazza is, you know, that's what, and a lot of people drink it. It's, it's a popular thing and it's, it's good. But then there's like just these other levels that Europeans partake in and they're just unaffordable in the U S it, it, it's funny is relating to my, in my time in the wine industry back in 2002. Uh, and I was working out of the Southwest of France and we'd go there and we'd buy a bottle of wine and a bottle of wine costs us like a euro 20. And that exact same wine in the U.S. was almost ten dollars, and it's like it, it, it makes a big difference when you know when you can buy for a euro twenty a bottle compared to ten yeah. bucks a bottle. 
And I started looking, uh, I'm like, well, you know what, what about the ones that are like $10 for us? And they're like in the US, right. they're like 30 bucks. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's here. And th for $30, I'm getting almost, you know, I'm getting a the second wine of a grand crew in the US right. at like 80. It's like, holy cow, <laughs> changes your meal. And the same with coffee. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Totally. Yeah. I, so this is, this is hearsay, but I, I, since you used to work in the wine industry, I'll bring it up. Um, I've got a friend who told me this story that they had some sommeliers who, who were sampling wine, testing wines, uh, and, and they took white wines. They had a, a section of white wines and they used red food coloring in all of them to make them look like reds. And none of them could, none of whoever they gave this to found out, could tell that they were red wines versus white wines. Do, do you want to hear a, another funny wine fact? Well, yes. I'll, I'll tell you two, cause I have some, some funny <laughs> ones. So one of them is. With, if you go and you check people that are what, like super tell, super tasters and super smellers, like people who have the most sensitive smell and taste, you'll find that the vast majority of them are women, but the vast majority of wine tasters are men. So you have to ask some questions here about what's going on. Uh, one thing. And the second thing is one of the things I learned in the Southwest of France from really talking to the wine experts is if, if you ever asked, what's the best wine? Like, what's the best wine? The answer is whatever I like, because that's the only <laughs> thing that really matters. So people kind of go for the status stuff. But in the end, if you really, if, if you spend 80 euros on a bottle and you don't enjoy it, what, what the heck? That's a waste. Totally. It's better to spend so funny. 10 bucks and be happy. It, it is, it is so funny how easily people are swayed by marketing and, and things. I was at a tequila tasting recently and, um, and I don't, I know very little about tequila, but you know, they, they brought us from whatever it is to whatever it is. And and, you know, the, the, the individual similarly was talking about how, you know, they've got all these grades and ratings and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, whatever you like is whatever you like. And there's very, very affordable, you know, tequilas or very, 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 very affordable wines or very affordable, you know, coffees that are, if that's what you like, then that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. There's zero reason to expect that it just, you know, just because it's more expensive that it should be something. However. However, you'll respect this. So uh, I've got I've got a friend who is who was sent to this bottle for his birthday of wine, and I can't remember I can't remember what kind of wine it was, uh, but it arrived at his office, and so naturally the staff were like a bottle of wine, you know that's you know so they did, did some research on it and they found it was two hundred fifty bucks uh, retail, and so you know you'd expect it to be a pretty good bottle of wine, and um, so we, he, he invited me over to partake in this, uh, you know, expensive bottle of wine. And I thought, well, we have to do a blind taste testing with something else. Uh, and so I, <laughs> I went to target and found like, I think, I think it might've been a $5 or $6 bottle of, of Gato Negro, uh, which who the hell knows what that is. Uh, <laughs> and we, we, we put them head to head. And you, I mean, if there's a difference, there's a difference between the $5 bottle of wine and a $250 bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like that. You yeah. know, I think the, the one day that at the time I learned the biggest lesson, I, I was in the South of Southwest of France and there's this vineyard that produced some of the best Armagnac in the world, which is like a cognac, but from the South, like they're not really, but it's, if you have an, a sense of what cognac is, that's an Armagnac, similar stuff okay. made from grapes as a base. And this was like the guy who did this, it was his first independent um, running of the vineyard since he took it over from his grandfather. It was his first Armagnac batch from 1973. And it had been, it stayed in the bottle for like 30 or the, the barrels for 35 years. He didn't even like selling it. It was only sold to two restaurants in the world, both of them super famous, Maxime's in Paris, which is one of the most famous you know, restaurants in the world in one place in Annapolis in the US and only because they were friends. It was almost impossible mm -hmm. to get. So if I had to, if I bought it and sold it on the open market, maybe I get it for like a thousand or 1500 bucks a bottle. And I got a bottle for my mom because my mom really likes that stuff. And I, I gave it to her for a Christmas present. And the next weekend I, I said, Hey, did, did you, did you get a chance to taste it yet? And she goes, Oh yeah, we drank it last weekend. It was really good. I'm like what? <laughs> I drank it in one weekend. She's like, no, no, one night. We, we had it in a night. We shared it in a night. I'm like, what? <laughs> but she loved it. She enjoyed it. So, you know, what do I have to say? Oh my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. The, this, this expensive bottle 
it was it was remarkable how com how complex the wine was. It was like the the cheap bottle you could just you could drink it. It was like uh, you know it just it would just kind of go down. You know, there was no conversation with your you know didn't 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 stand your palate just gone. But this other bottle, you, it would like hit your palate and then it would start unfolding and it and it, it it almost demanded. It was really weird and it was a blind taste test, but it it almost demanded this just like pay attention for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then it would subtly change. Oh my gosh, it was so great. So we we've, we've determined that we're gonna we're gonna drink an absurdly expensive bottle of wine at least once a year, just cause <laughs> it's fun. I mean, if you like that experience, it's great. It really is. I love it too. Now, if you come to Europe, you probably get the same bottle for like. Uh, <laughs> Stop, it. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! Yeah, the problem is you got to you got to amortize the plane ticket in there. So you got to buy a lot of bottles. <laughs> so it's still an expensive bottle. Yeah. yeah. Or you got to drink a ton. Well, this, this is good. So you, when you first signed up, um, and I'm curious, what, what drew you to clicking the button to have coffee with me? So I'd seen a couple of your podcasts and I just, I, I like that we're talking about this stuff. It can just be easy and fun and we can just enjoy the time. It's really like if I'd kind of like met you walking to the coffee shop, I had some time, you wanted to sit down and have a chat. And I love that. I just love it. So it allows us to just chat and explore ideas and things and see where it goes. So you're, you have some ideas that are on your mind. And when I was asking you, what are we going to title this chat? Uh, we were stirring around thinking, you know, what, what to talk about. And you had some heavy I don't know if they're heavy concepts, but they're at least uh, like level two thought concepts, you know, things that most people wouldn't consider. Uh, And we boiled it all down to the roots of knowing yourself. But you're talking about stoicism, which I've only talked to one other person about in 150 something episodes. Uh, The, and I know, I know a little bit about it. Um, I have a, I have a book called the daily stoic and I've read some stuff. Good. Um, and then you're also getting into neuroscience and quantum mechanics, which I have I've touched a little bit on those just out of curiosity in in my forty something years on the planet. Um, how does all of this tie together, and why do you care? Oh, well, that's a big question. Oh. <laughs> it is. I know it's very open ended. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, but the, it's, there's got to be some reason why all of these disparate that things, things that, yeah. like have circled around and like suddenly you're interested in them. So I, I kind of, I had a really weird childhood, and so I, I became a mechanical engineer. I'm a graduate of University of Michigan, all that good stuff. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be a priest, and the the question that has to come up is, what in the heck did a, a kid who wanted to be a first a kid who wants to be a priest is already weird. Everyone wants to be like firemen and stuff. And then like, how did you go from a priest to an engineer? And the reality was that it was a a, one needing to prove my dad wrong. Mm. And after I got done, I I traveled abroad and my first job, I got super lucky. And I ended up in Italy as my first, my very first job. I was sent overseas to Italy and like everything was flipped on its head. It's my, I I was, I never expected to even go out of the country in my life. I always expected to kind of stay in Michigan and, you know, work somehow there. And I ended up moving to Italy and everything was flipped on its head. All my expectations, every, all of the things in my life that you would expect to be normal all became like absurd. And I'm like, holy cow, why am I, why have I lived the way that I've been living for this 22 years on this planet? And I started having to break, I, I got I got curious and I started breaking them down and just realizing all of the reasons I was doing things that were fighting against other people or doing, going for something that I was told was good. And I'm like, there's something like, I don't have any freedom this way. I'm just either going for something that other people said, or I'm going against something that other people said. And this is weird. Uh, so I started looking at how I could kind of figure my own way in life and be sure I wasn't going to regret stuff when I died. It's kind of weird, but the priest thing made it. So that when I was 22, I was actually thinking about that. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so I set out on a journey when I was 22 to figure that out. And, uh, I'd, I'd come a long way on my own, but in, um, in 2010, I decided to, I was living in China and I decided I wanted to get an MBA and everybody told me, and I hope I don't get in trouble with this. Everybody told me M- MBAs are worthless because I already run some companies and they're like, don't get an MBA. So one of my friends said, Hey, there's this crazy MBA in Italy by the university of Iowa. And they do this neural leadership thing. So you'll actually get leadership stuff and that might have value because the MBA stuff won't. And I'm like, okay, well, why not? 
So, uh, so I went there and they had a crazy MBA program. They hooked us up to biometric devices and we got into neuroscience and got to meet all these cool professors. And, uh, and at the end of the, and I, it was a great year, by the way. I mean, they locked us in a monastery for a year with wow. like 18 other kids, 18 other people. And then they like pressure cooker, two years worth of classes put into one year, really super pressure. And then you're getting feedback. It was really a cool program. Wow. Um, through the University of Iowa and Chimba. And at the end of the program, I had written the director like a 12-page letter of all the things he needed to change to make it better. And he goes, good, why don't you come here and you can help? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so for like five years, I just got stuck into all this science. But it, I was still was looking at what, what's missing. Like, like what, there's a bunch of things that, that we're missing. Because in the program, what we were doing is we were helping people distinguish between like, you know, this is what your brain is going to tell you. So, you know, all the neuroscience and that stuff. So for example, if you, if, let's just take running, like you decide you want to go exercise and you're going to run a marathon because you decide this is one of your goals in life. Well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to wake up in the morning and go, oh, I got to run. I shouldn't have to do this. And then you're going to be running and be like, ah, oh, my legs hurt. Maybe I should stop. Like your brain just talks you into all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, that's just an example, but that happens everywhere. So they taught us kind of, this is the way your brain gets in the way, but then you still have to come up with some foundation. So it's like, okay, well, that's still my brain telling me what I should or shouldn't do. How do I decide what I, what, how do I decide where to go? Like how, if it might, yeah. it's not my brain telling me stuff and leading me around, what even makes me get out of bed in the morning? Um, and so that's when I started continuing to dig. And then, you know, I got into all this other stuff. So it all comes together as a way of my journey to figure out who am I in the end and how do I separate who I am from all the rest of this stuff, right? All of my brain, all of what other people want, society's pressures, and all of that. And, and I found a lot of really neat things in that, that journey and that discovery. Well, if you're going to be a priest at a young age, you, you grew up in a pretty, um, uh, defined, like defined boundaries and you knew what you're heading for. Um, and then if you traveled around the world, you probably, it seems to me probably you're like, oh my God, this like the world is a big place and there are people who live perfectly normal lives on the other side of the world who have known nothing about my life and nothing about my experiences. And they think their lives are, you know, defined and had to a particular place. And that must've exactly. been very eye-opening. Well, so the crazy thing about my religious thing is neither of my parents are very religious at all. So why did you want to be a priest? Exactly. I, I literally was like, seems like the randomest thing to choose when you're like five years old. But I mean, I went, I would go to church on the weekends with my grandparents. My parents didn't even go okay. to church. And yeah, I just, I guess I was like, oh yeah, this is, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember back to that time what was driving me, but I just had this inclination and, you know, being mm. a teenager also changed some of those inclinations too, but for sure, you know, discovering girls and all that. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, I have no idea. I just, that's, that's what I want to do. And I don't want to be a priest now for sure. But, uh, an engineer was, was really a different direction compared to that. And, and I'd realized that was due to my relationship with my dad and wanting to, um, prove him that I could do it. What he said I couldn't. Yeah. So, so you must have some, some, something in you must want to see a bigger picture and explain meaning and, and then find reason for that meaning or like the, so if the earth, this, um, I didn't, yeah, I'm quite right, but right. If, so if, if, if all of this stuff, then why, and there must be a reason for all of that, that must be bigger than just the fact that there's stuff. Right. And the, I mean, actually, after all the time, what I found is that there isn't, you can't answer the question and now we're getting really deep, but I, I, I found that you have to answer the question for yourself. Okay. And I'll that's say. the best you can do. So what, so, well, let me, let me go like, take a step back and, and kind of talk about like how I just did it really the quick way of going about it. So I'd realized for me as well, I want I need to have something like I need to have a good job so I can do stuff. So like, I can like, you know, be a dad or whatever. So I can be somebody like be a good dad or be a good parent or be a good provider or, um, you know, till it show love, right. Any of that stuff, but I had to have in order to do in order to be, which is the traditional project management, set your goal and go for it type thing. So you can have the end result. 
And what I came to the conclusion of is that there's a, the other way to do it is to say, I'm going to be who I'm going to be, and I'm going to de decide that myself. And then I'm going to do whatever there is that comes from that. And then I'm going to have a result. And that instead was the profound thing. And, and then you say, okay, well, who are you? Like, what is, what does it mean to be? And that was the exploration that got me into the, you know, the neuroscience. You start taking away, if I take away all my brains kind of automatic talk and I take away all my wants and I take away all the other stuff, what am I left with? And, uh, actually Victor Frankl touched on this in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, when he talks about the concentration camps and mm -hmm. you have, there's the famous story where there's the people who would break into the hospital and steal food from the sick and the dying because food was life. But there was some people that would break it, that would go into the hospital in order to give their food to the sick and dying, which doesn't make logical sense. And he attributed it to people choosing to be who they were going to be despite the situation. They, they weren't going to allow the situation to dictate who they were. They were going to, that's their freedom. That was the last of the human freedoms. And so a lot of the ideas that I have with starting with B come from that, those types of things. And stoicism actually seems to miss that a little bit. It goes through all the other stuff, but it kind of misses that one piece is where do you start? And they kind of have virtues there, but um, I still haven't figured out how they see virtues in a way that are unmovable because there's some famous Stoics that made a lot of mistakes. So, well, sure. My, um, here's, here's my thought. I don't know. Connecting some dots. Uh, so I, I actually watched a show on the Holocaust uh, this past week. Uh, so it's interesting that you bring up Victor Frankl and, uh, there was, there was a, an issue with the trials and how, uh, Germany didn't want to have, uh, trials. They didn't have, they didn't have actually laws in place at the time to punish and mass people who did not have a particular crime that they could point to. Like we didn't see you, you know, actually murder some a particular individual. So there's no crime that, that we could you know, uh, tag you on, uh, to then bring you to trial. Well, anyhow, through a handful of events, uh, eventually they bring, uh, this, uh, the, uh, they call him the accountant to trial and it's a Netflix documentary. You can freely watch it. Uh, and basically this guy, um, his, his task was to simply collect all the stuff from, uh, the people as they came into the concentration camps because they didn't need the stuff anymore was his explanation. And to during his trial, they brought in other um, Holocaust survivors to uh, to 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 speak what about what what had happened. And in the middle of all of this trial, there's one lady who says, "I've forgiven this guy, and I've forgiven all of." the people who, who, uh, committed these atrocities. And, and then there are a bunch of other people who are saying we can never forgive them. And then, and then there's somebody else who says, you know, if she needs, if she needs forgiveness for herself to live her life, that's fine. Here's how I've dealt with living my life. And it seems to be, uh, it seems to be one, another one of those cases where what's the, what's the, what's the right, what's the virtuous, what's the logical What's the commonsensical way through this? There's no particular, there's no particular path that you could point to and say one is best or one is not. And in fact, there might be the moral path, there might be the law path. So should should he be brought to trial for law? Probably. Morally, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Was he was he a victim in in this situation? Like there's there's all of these layers of questions that people have, and yet. At the end of the day, you just got to make a choice. And of all the people who came to, you know, to, to his trial to, uh, to offer their testimonies, they all dealt with it completely different ways. And they all feel perfectly justified in, in their experiences. The, the, the level deeper, regardless of how everybody act, the level deeper is pretty universally. People would look at what had happened and said, that is a terrible atrocity for all sorts of reasons. And and we'd all agree. We all have some fundamental agreement, even though we might, we might even offer forgiveness in a completely different way, or maybe not. Maybe we wouldn't offer forgiveness at all. No, it's, it's super interesting as a, as a case, because if you think, you know, 
as a society, we do make a lot of rules as we have to, because that's just what works. And we don't always get them right, but we do the best we can do. And we're all looking for kind of the right way. But all we can really do is listen to other people give us advice, I mean, in general. And those people were just giving advice based on what they worked through. And then we're taking it and we're listening to it. We're going, hey, that sounds good. But in the end, it's still our life. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're looking up to. Like, for, I could live my whole life and at the end of it go, well, I followed everything Gandhi said I should do and I'm not happy. Oh my gosh. Well, I just wasted my life on what another person says. And he can be brilliant. He can, anything, anybody, these philosophers or these religious leaders, they can be brilliant, but no matter what, it, it's still our life and we still have to take responsibility for it because we only get one. And just the question I had was, how can we take responsibility for it as fully as possible? And you know, maybe we want to listen to other people, but maybe we also want to do something different. We want to test our own way and we want to see for ourselves. And kind of with the being part, it's the goal is to find a way to explore based on who you choose from you because you said so. And then you go forward and then you explore and you see what's there. And for me, that's, and I assign all my emails, stay awesome and enjoy your life's journey because it's, it's your journey. And if you believe in reincarnation, great, but you don't know that for sure. You don't like, maybe, maybe there's a heaven, maybe not. We just, we don't, you can't be absolutely sure. You can only believe it. So what we can be sure of is you got this life, you got this journey. And if you just focus on making it all you can make it be, then that's probably the best you can do. And why not just do it in a way that you can take both the credit and the blame for the outcomes? So that's, that's the exploration. Well, that's interesting to bring up the idea of the credit and the blame for the outcomes, because I think, I think therein lies a bit of the rub because it's in, it's in, it's, it's, it's my opinion that most people believe something at some point in time that flies in the face of facts. The example that was given to me at one point in time was that there's a guy standing on stage and it's like a thousand of us in the audience. And he says, how, how many people believe that the early bird gets the worm? And everybody's like, yeah, right. And then he says, how many believe that good things come to those who wait? And we're all like, well, yeah, wait, huh? And, <laughs> and it's, it, we can carry at times as people competing, competing beliefs. Is it the early bird gets the worm? Is it good things come to those who wait? And the answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> and yet, when when it comes to like personal uh, I, uh, issues of personal identity, we want to end up with more answers, it seems, than questions, hmm. right? And it and and every pretty universally, the uh, the goal I think of most belief paradigms is to provide answers that then people just believe rather than posing questions and offering discovery. Hmm. Yep. No, I agree. So what then, how, how does a person transition to that concept of asking questions? It seemed like you asked questions when you went from, Hey, I should be a priest into, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer into, I'm going to go lock myself in a monastery for a year and learn about leadership. And, you know, and now, and now you're here talking about stoicism and all sorts of stuff. You had well, a lot of questions. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I guess I started out with questions and I got lucky because, you know, the world is this amazing teacher because you can have an idea. And once you bump your head up against it a couple of times, it teaches you, you know, that school of hard knocks. Uh, and, and actually in the alignment quotient book, that I, that I wrote and that some of that's what we're talking about now. Um, the way that I have people declare being is I I've actually defined 35 words and they're abstract concepts meant in, in nouns, noun form. So like for me, love, for example, the word love, you can be love. It's something you choose and you, you just declare, this is what I'm going to be. And the definition is to be a stand for the life of another so that they have the experience of peace, love, and joy in the world. So now, as soon as you say, okay, and part of the process is I, this is who I am now from that you do whatever there is to do. And then, then automatically you start seeing all these things get in your way. It's like, if you, if you like, you know, spin yourself around, close your eyes, blindfold yourself 
and then say, okay, I'm going to go that way. And you, you point in this direction and then you just start walking. You just find all these things in your way that you just didn't know because you chose you're going to go in that direction straight. And through that process, using being, you're discovering yourself. You're discovering all the thoughts and ideas and the way your body works, the way your mind works and the way your relationships are structured. You're learning all of these things because you're bumping up against the problems. And the problems are only created because you've made this declaration of being, and now you're living into it. So you unavoidably discover, and through that, the, the part of asking questions becomes a bit more easy. How and then I, do you decide who, 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 how then do you, do you decide, or do you answer this question in the book, um, who you should be or what you should be or how you should be? So, and I actually have an online course too. Uh, the first, so I actually have a worksheet to walk through and there's two ways you can go through the worksheet and they're, they're done intentionally. One is for the person who needs structure. So I ask you a series of questions like, um, like who are your role models? Like, what do you appreciate about these people? And have you distill them down into who they are? And then I have you look at like the feedback you have, what you want people to say about in your deathbed. And I have, you know, the people who love you and the people who'd be your, your rational critic. And I have you kind of distill down to, you can come to some list so that you can choose. That's one way. The other way is I actually have a list in the back. You can cut them out. You can fold them up, put them in a hat and randomly pick them out. So there's two processes you can go to get to that, to start practicing. And I, I do it that way just because some people are find it, would find it bizarre just to always pull it out of the hat. But I'm surprised about a third of the people that go through just decide to pull it out of a hat. It's just, they just want to explore. And that's always, I think that's a fun way to do it. But either way, it doesn't matter because people put a lot of thought and everything into it and they get there and they're like really confident and then they go forward and they realize they find all the same questions come up and all the same problems. So that's how I have them do it. And then through the core class, they actually explore. And then I give some frameworks based on neuroscience and social ecology to help them put things in boxes about themselves in an, in an easier way. So it's not like you have a million things that it could be. It's like, oh, here's five that you probably want to look at. And here's like another 10. And if you look at these 15 things, you're going to find most of what you're doing lies inside of them. And it's easier to put them in boxes and go, oh yeah, that's not me. That's my brain. It's like, okay, well, now I understand what my brain's doing. Now I can listen to it or not. I still have a choice, uh, but at least I know. So, so there's a recognition. It seems that there's a recognition that the, that the individual is existent within a body that has a brain and and the brain and the individual are not the same thing necessarily uh and there's a will right so back to your back to your uh you used an example early, earlier on about a guy you know gets up wakes up in the morning and think i should go running um and then doesn't and then you said you alluded to you're like and your brain gets in the way your brain does things and knowing what your brain does, how does all that relate to that very practical example of that guy who wakes up in the morning and says, I should go running and then doesn't. Yeah. It's so your body and your brain. So, well, go ahead and separate yourself from your brain and see how that goes. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's impossible to do at the same point. We don't really fully understand consciousness. Like we don't know. Right. And we do have this ancient idea of spirit or soul, and we do have some very interesting evidence, if you look, on um, from the United States, surprisingly. I, I recently watched a show on that, too. <laughs> yeah. Of all sorts of evidence of consciousness outside of the body. Right. And, and, and reincarnation, actually, which is really bizarre, because as a Christian culture, we don't have this concept like they would have maybe in like Nepal or someplace else. Mm -hmm. So the fact this is, and these are not woo-woo people. These are scientists documenting cases, which is fascinating um and we don't have a lot of them but there's some that are just raise some eyebrows yeah um so we don't know this so we are connected to our our brain and nobody's going to be able to tell you anything differently and we don't know what that means so that person who wakes up in the morning and is going to go running what might be happening is their brain's going man this feels so good why lose this great morning to go for a run when like it's so warm and nice inside this bed and oh i can just get a couple more hours of sleep like you can convince yourself of anything and your brain is going to want to do that because that's what your brain's there for. Your brain's there to keep you alive and alive sometimes looks like just enjoying the fun, right? Cause why not? Right. From a brain's perspective, there's no reason to run unless there's a lion chasing after you. So why force it? And 
to understand that our brain is set that way for energy. If you talk to scientists, they'll say it's energy conservation. Your brain wants to conserve energy. So running does not conserve energy. Uh, thinking does not conserve energy. We want to go to the lowest state of energy use. So that's what our brain does. And then if it's forced out, then it will. Because and every psychologist would say that there's, there's actually some other reason why a person, you know, doesn't get fit when they wanted to be fit and why they put on weight to keep other people at a distance. And, you know, and then, and then some, and then scientists will tell you, well, actually there's chemicals at play in here too, that you get into this cycle, your body wants those chemicals and that's why you overeat. Mm -hmm. And then somebody will say, no, that's not what it is. It's interesting that it's, it, it, what's fascinating to me is in like discussions like this, the only, the only, um, the only way is to go continue through the rabbit hole. Yeah. And the rabbit hole just gets deeper and more connected and, 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 and in some ways more confusing, uh, or at least more questions, uh, more questions, uh, are created than answers are ever found. And as soon as we find an answer, then that creates actually another question or when some, or when we find an answer, that answer is tested. And then it becomes even more, you know, that it's like, oh, but that wasn't what it was. There's actually something else. It's like an endless world of discovery to figure out, you know, why a person doesn't get up in the morning to just go, go, go running. Go running. Well, it's, it's <laughs> interesting know? that there's some, there's some really interesting science that's gone on that's found some really interesting connections in mathematics that suggest that the, the brain wants to achieve the lowest state of energy. And they've been able, they have some very, very interesting proof that this is the case. And one of the cool things about it is like, let's take your example of like, you know, gaining weight in order to like avoid having to get close to people. Well, if getting close to people causes you a lot of anxiety, causes you a lot of burning energy, then gaining weight is the way to minimize that energy output in that sense. So they've been able to really frame a lot of our behaviors in a lot of different ways to this concept of minimizing energy use. So any, if, if there's anything like could be that running causes you anxiety or, um, anything that would cause you a lot of stress and anxiety would make your brain want to need to work more to solve the problem that it sees as this disconnect. And if it has to solve the problem, then it's going to do the thing that causes that problem to be solved in the easiest way. So it's, it's, but you're right. You can, if you ask the individual questions, the rabbit hole can go on for a very long time. And this science is not, uh, it's not finished. Like there's still massive debates going on. There's a lot of different theories going forward. And we don't know in the end, what's the outcome's going to be. We just know they've been arguing about consciousness for a really long time and they haven't gone any place. Right. Yeah. Uh, so here's a, here's an interesting question. So you, you talked about quantum mechanics and I'm curious and, and in all of your research, uh, and studies that you've done or been part of, and, and clearly read, um, this idea of people's consciousness and our will affecting things around us. So affecting things like random number generation, uh, which has been tested and proven that, that we, we as people can actually affect, um, systems around us that we have no direct, there's, we have no direct control over where have, have you done anything in that? Yeah. I mean, or so the science, the science on this is so fascinating. There's so many gaps right now, but you're in a very interesting place. Cause I've, I've seen some of this stuff and there's, there's actually a number of different studies, not only just random number generators changing, but there's some other things as well. And, and keep in mind that for the science part, you not only need to have a number of different evidences that have this happens, so a number of different independent things, but you also have to link it to something else. And I haven't seen all the linkages put in place, which is, which is a big missing. That being said, uh, one of the reasons I dug into quantum physics is there's some really interesting science there on entanglement that is, we haven't really explored all of the places this extends to. So like, for example, probably everybody is familiar with the Copenhagen interpretation of the double slit experiment, because it's like everywhere. It talks about, you know, particles going through these two slits and you'd expect they'd go through one or the other, and it ends up, they go through both and they interfere with themselves and they create an interference pattern instead of the the two slit pattern, like you'd expect if you were shooting a gun at a paper with two slits in it. And so this is, this is a very weird experiment itself. But what scientists did with that is they actually entangled, they created entangled photons and they shot one at the double slit. And then 
after it, the one had hit, they went down and, and it went to either a quantum kind of system to measure. They either measured it or not. And if it had measured, and when I say it didn't measure it, I mean, it, it kind of like just measured it, but destroyed it. So that okay. it was still interacted with, which is kind of important. Um, and what they found is if in the future, that entangled particle had been measured, then the previous particle had already hit the slit as if it was a little dot. But if it hadn't been, then it hit it as a potential wave. So it had interfered with itself and hit in the interference style, which makes zero sense because it's, it's basically something that was going to happen in the future impacted the past. And we know entanglement is a thing. We know it exists. We know particles can be entangled and we have no idea on a mass scale, like on, for us, how we're entangled with things. Like, are we entangled with other things in the same way? We just have no clue. Yeah. And so that's a big gap. And so when you ask me this question about the random, those random number generator things, it's like, okay, where is the entanglement? And that was one of the questions that the Copenhagen experiment kind of started asking is maybe the observer was entangled with the particle, which is why that happened somehow. And so when you were observing it, there was some sort of entanglement that was collapsing the wave or not. Um, but we, we just don't know. There's just so many gaps there in, in our knowledge and understanding, but there's some really cool science there that, that allows us to think about some really neat things that could change the way we look at our lives and, and determinism. And for me, that's a big thing is looking at does, is determinism a real thing? Like we don't have any real choice. Wait, define, de define determinism for our viewers and listeners. So determinism is when basically from the, the beginning of time, everything was kind of like dominoes falling down. And so what's going to happen next was already determined by all of the different things in the past, whether you could have known them or not. So functionally, it kind of eliminates the concept of free will. Like what's the do next domino that's going to fall can't fall any other way because of all the things that had happened before that predetermined that that was going to be what would happen next. And I don't like it because it means that we have no free will. And it's kind of a, one of my belief things. So, <laughs> but there's also evidence to suggest that maybe uh, this isn't the way that it works. And some of that lies in the fact of, you know, the whole idea of probability waves, like with particles, even they're, they're not a thing until you observe them. And otherwise they're just a potential of things, which is I kind saw, of how heard, we experience life. Right. I heard an interesting explanation on this. Um, and, uh, that the closer you get to an event, the more determined it is. So if you said, so for instance, if you said, I'm going to lower my, I, by my arm, I'm going to lower my arm. I look like I'm floating. I wear this black. <laughs> I look, it's like one of those really cool I'm things. I'm like a mime. Like a black light. Yeah. Okay. So, so if I say I'm, I'm going to lower my arm, I have free will to lower my arm until I lower my arm. And then my arm is just lowering. And now I have free will to stop it. But once I, once it's, once it's started, I no longer have the free will because it's just happening. And so the, the explanation was the closer you get to an event, the, the more, the, the more determined that event becomes and the less free will you have, which is an interesting theory. I like to, I like to say it the other way, the closer okay. you get to something in time, the less possibilities are in front of you. There you go. And, and the reason I like it that way is in one way you're saying, look, my free will is limited and the other, you still have possibilities. It's just the possibilities start reducing and that's a normal thing. So I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but there's still possibilities and that's, mm -hmm. that's critical to free will because as long as you have possibilities for that next second, and it's not only one, but there's multiple things, even if there's two or three or four only, it still gives you choice. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Well, this all circles back on Coffee with Humans because Coffee with Humans, <laughs> this actually does, it wasn't just a cute transition. It circles back into Coffee with Humans because I do, I, as part of my belief system, I do believe that humans carry a special power and authority and responsibility for the world that nothing else gets. Everything else just kind of goes about, goes about its business. And if it's, uh, if its environment is destroyed, it's done. You know, if it no longer has something, the, the thing it used to eat, it's done. Humans, humans, however, affect our environment in ways that nothing else affects its environment. And we affect each other in ways that nothing else, that, that is nothing else affects. And so I think, and why Coffee with Humans partly exists, is this idea that when you get two people in a, into a space, 
we really have the capability to do a handful of things. Number one is to name our present reality and name a different future that we'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Nothing else does that. It just, it just does its thing. Mm-hmm. Then we get to, we get to go about the business of creating, putting things in place, things that didn't once exist and causing them to come into existence and creating that future. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the opportunity to destroy things either out of ignorance, stupidity, or malice, or destroy things for our good because they no longer serve us to get to that reality, that, that, that future reality that we want. And that's why Coffee with Humans exists, is to provide that space where people get to name, create, and destroy things just because we, we as people have that ability to do it. I love it. By the way, you'd love, in the book, I have a chapter called Future First, and that's like okay. almost exactly the concept of it. That's awesome. that you actually have the chance to create your, so we have a future comes first and then we live into that future. And we, the only, the only reason that future exists is because we said so. Right. So we spoke our word, right? And that's why. Yeah. And I a lot of times, all... go, ahead. Oh, go ahead. I would say a lot of times we just go ahead and we just kind of like fall into our future, but we don't have to, we, we can, but we don't have to, we can do something different, which is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think it's actually the intersection and, and, uh, I'll, I've got to pick up your book and read it now. Um, or actually I'll probably listen to it. Is that an audible? I hope it's an audible. Uh, it isn't. I, the course it's like the course actually. I'm like, gun. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'll read it. Is it super long? <laughs> Should, I, why, don't, why am I qualifying it's, it's actually, all this? It's actually a work. There's a workbooks built in there. So all the things I I'm telling that I teach in the course okay. are in there. So you can go Good. through and then you have the workbook and yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can fill Good. it out. I love it. So I, I think that the confluence of all of these things you're talking about you, because the the idea of our physical world, we have to, we, we interact with our physical world. We can study our physical world. We can feel, touch it, know it, and we can come to new conclusions and know those things uh, and determine as many things as we can and, and understand as many things as we can and leave open all the things we can't uh, or the things we once thought we knew that now we didn't, we, turns out we don't. Um, that I think it is linked or is, is necessarily linked with, you know, you have, you have some spiritual background and, and some, you know, some framework for, uh, you know, the spirit. And then we've got this idea of, you know, the consciousness that sits in there, you know, where, where is that exactly? And how does that interact with all of these things? Cause it's pretty clear it interacts in ways that we don't understand. We can measure them even, um, but who can say how? It's, it's, it, it is interesting that all of that has come together now in your journey. Uh, you know, even, even, uh, even from a young age that you, you know, you wanted to answer life's biggest questions for people. And, and, you know, kind of a weird thing on that consciousness thing in measurements, because some people say, ah, yeah, but we can put things in the brain and we can see what's going on. And what we see is we see blood flow or electrical activity. And this is just a fun thing. Cause this is not me. There's somebody else, there's another scientist who's really, really brilliant who said this. So I'm just going to like make it up, tell you what he said. Um, And he said, when we're looking at brain stuff and we want to say the the brain causes something, he goes, well, imagine if an alien came down to earth and it was watching like a bus station or a train station, what it would see, it would see a whole bunch of people kind of coming together on the platform and then it would see a train arrive. And from that information, it could assume that people arriving on a platform caused train. But there was actually something behind that. There was a schedule that was unseen that caused all of those things to happen. And we didn't, and the aliens didn't have a way to know about that schedule and that timing plan and all that other stuff. But they, with the information they had, they made the best assumption of causality that they could. And we would know that they were wrong, but they wouldn't know they were wrong. And so they're saying, we're so young on the brain stuff that we don't know that that's what's happening. That we're measuring yeah. stuff that we're, we think is causal. And it, it may not be causal. We just don't know. That is, it's that kind of stuff is super fascinating. There's a whole, there's a whole world in that. I read a study, um, well, a synopsis of a study that was done many years ago back to say that it, it was also kind of like this idea, like I'm going to move my arm out and they, they were measuring electrical activity uh, and they had come, they, they, uh, it was when they had the resolution or the ability to, to uh, measure it, the speed of electric electrical activity much more finitely, and uh, 
And what they measured was when a person consciously made the when a person consciously made a decision to move their arm, they had subconsciously made the decision moments before, mm-hmm. repeatedly. And so mm-hmm. you'd say, I'm gonna move my arm, but your body already started the process. And then it went and then you're like, Oh, I'm moving my arm. And it's and it's so fascinating. You know, when when we loop all that stuff back on there, it's like, did I what you know, why do I do dumb things? It's like, hmm. There might be more to it than than you realize. You might be realizing after the fact. You know, you, your brain might be processing it after the fact, and you're coming to the conclusion. You know, and, but the reason started somewhere else that we don't know. We don't know where it was that. Well, actually, so in the book, I that's like one of the key things. It's that you can actually build your brain. So you you can mold and modify your brain. And there's tons of research that shows neuroplasticity and how it works, and you can rewire your brain. And so part of the whole reason of starting with being is so that as you go forward and you start exploring and, and it's kind of forces you to ask the questions about yourself, you can rewire your brain. So those, so your brain is subconsciously doing what you would already plan to do, but it's, but it's just like running. If you get up in the morning, every morning and you go running at seven in the morning, then your brain getting up in the morning becomes easier because your brain just knows that's what you're going to do next. So the arm movement is an example, but most of the things we do are done non-consciously, but you can train your brain to to habitually non-consciously do that, which I call supporting yourself. You actually create mm-hmm. your brain as a tool to support you and where you want to go in your life. And so that's kind of the point of starting is, with being. Which is so important. And maybe you get to this in your book, this idea that we are, we are basically built on habits throughout our day. And there are so many things, so many decisions that our brain made for us that we never, we never gave conscious thought to. And it became programmed that way. We chose we at one point in time made a conscious decision or sometimes a subconscious decision to, to program our brains to do that thing. And then when we want to change it, we wonder why it's so difficult, Be, you know, and, and we go and we ascribe all sorts of reasons. But part of the reason could be just you had programmed a different habit and your brain is there to support you in whatever it seems that you felt like you wanted to do. Your body's just going along for the ride to some degree. So oh, yeah. put a new habit in place, your body will catch up. And I think that everybody, I've never heard anybody who's become, let's say, successful in, in whatever they wanted to do. Um, uh, like I, I saw recently somebody who uh, had become an Olympic athlete in two years. Wow. Uh, and she had just decided, like, I'm just going to start doing this. And uh, she, she made it to the Olympic team within two years. And she had never done that sport prior. It just wasn't something that she had done. Uh, and she just put her, she, you know, quote, unquote, put her mind to it. And started putting the disciplines in place and and worked her ass off and voila, you know, she's there. So the idea that whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You know, it it's uh, to some degree it is that simple. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of other complications, right? But there it it but it does begin, I think, with what do you intend to do? And then start putting those start putting those disciplines in place and your body will support you um, over time. Yeah, there, there's some yeah. really interesting um, neuroscience about the amygdala and, and um, there's actually some parts of your brain that as you use them more, they get bigger and the amygdala is one of those areas. So it, that's, people know about that. It's kind of like the fight and flight. Um, but you can, you can actually reduce the size of some of those, those parts of structures in your brain and reduce their connectivity. Um, you're able to do it yourself with practice and exercise and mindfulness is shown to do that. So focused mindfulness practice has shown to be able to reduce some of these things that, that can get in our way. And, um, yeah, I talk about that a little bit in the book, but the, the science is very, very, very good on that. And it doesn't take a lot. It's like 12 weeks of 15 minutes a day, something like that. And you can reduce the size of your amygdala, which reduces the amount of stress and anxiety you have in your life. And you can see both of those things happening. You can see the, the size and the connectedness of those, those, uh, brain parts reducing at the same time that you experience the anxiety and the other things reducing as well in, in patients. It's and fascinating. I think that's, that is fascinating because it's really showing that with some focused attention and effort, you can change actually the way your brain talks to you, which is <laughs> one simple right. change I made uh, a long time ago. And I, cause I was coaching at a gym and I, um, I noticed that people would go, through, you know, trying to get them to lift weights that they had not lifted before. And the typical response you get is I can't, I can't do whatever it is, you know, insert, insert phrase here. And, uh, I suggested having seen many people actually have already lifted the weight 
that it wasn't that they absolutely had lifted the weight already. And so it was absurd. It's actually quite literally absurd to say you can't because you already did. Mm -hmm. uh, what you couldn't do is you couldn't land the weight. You couldn't hold the weight after you had lifted it. Those are two different things. And I suggested that, that when, when, we be go, when we go to begin lifting a weight off the floor to maybe hold it over our head, imagine the number of decisions that, have, that your body has to make to get everything working in, in perfect synchronicity to get yourself up there so that there's not one part that's not you know out of place because your body doesn't want to fall over and it doesn't want to hit its head that like hands down you can you'd have to work really hard to get yourself to fall over or to hit its head and so everything from the point that you thought about i'm going to lift this weight if you're not used to it if you haven't done it before your body's just like trying to figure out ways it's looking ahead in all of these series of events and going no you're not and so you can it's like you lifted the weight and then and then you're like, oh, I can't do this. It's like, you did it. And so what I started to train people to do was just, just change the phrase, say, I haven't yet, or I don't know yet. And that is, I think it's, for me, it's been so applicable to, to so many things. Instead of seeing roadblocks, instead of seeing can'ts, uh, or instead of seeing maybe some, some levels of anxiety there, because I don't know what's on, like, if I open the door, oh my God, all hell breaks loose. Uh, Instead say, I don't know what that's like. I've not experienced that yet. Or I don't, I, I don't yet know how to insert phrase because I think it opens it for me at least. And, and for people I trained, it opens the mind immediately into this area of possibilities where it's like, actually, I already did. I actually did lift that weight. And you're right. I didn't know how to land it. And you're right. I was afraid I was going to hit my head. And then, and now we can reason that through. But it's, mm -hmm. but if the if the first stop is I can't, it seems like all reason stops. It's like okay, fine, done, <laughs> moving oh, yeah. on. No, you're right. You can you can talk yourself into anything. Yeah, I mean you can. It's it's amazing. Um, I actually have one one other part in the book called uh, "Failure is the only option," mm. and the idea is that exactly that. It's like, look, you're gonna fail if you want to go in a direction. You're gonna fail, and there's lots of different ways to fail. One way of failing is how are you gonna feel if you never did it. And you're going to, you just went forward and you never did anything because you were always afraid you're going to fail. And then how are you going to feel at the end of your life? You're going to feel like you missed out and you failed. So there's a failure. You don't want that one. And then you can do stuff, fail and not learn from it and keep doing the same problem over and over. Or you can do something, fail and learn from it, but you can't avoid it. So if you can get it in your mind, that conversation that, yeah, if I'm going to learn something new, I'm going to fail. That's part of the process. And I'm going to learn from it because I'm going to be a smart person because I can tell myself I'm really smart, then you can go forward and you can be surprised at what you can do, right? I'm sure the girl who you were talking about who became an Olympic athlete in two years, she didn't think day one she was going to be an Olympic athlete. She didn't think, oh, tomorrow I'm going to get accepted. She thought, okay, I got to do a bunch of stuff. I got to figure this out. There's, yeah. there's work ahead. I'm she started with the idea that she could if she tried. Yeah. And so she did. <laughs> yeah. And that, that is the story I think of, of, of everybody that we look to Al, I know, I know, I know, I know I'm making a generalization for the human population, for the, for the people that we aspire to, the people who give the motivational quotes and that we keep on quoting, right? All of those, there's a universal characteristic to set to those folks and, 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 and certain things that they say. And one of those characteristics is, well, I just decided to, I just did it. And and it's and you're your you're your worst enemy. And it's like, oh, so of the things we can we probably can say with surety, yes, you can do you can do most of the things or maybe even all the things that you that you dreamed you could, and you just got to do it. And your the rest the all of the all of the things that are holding you back will eventually move out of their way, uh, or out of your way because of your intent your your intention on that. And I get there are. There are limitations to that. Somebody, there was a guy who told me at one point in time, he's a trainer. He's like, you can do anything for 10 minutes. It's like, that's not true. There's lots of things you actually can't do for 10 minutes. Right. But, you know, the, I was talking to my daughter about holding breath. And I said, what do you think the longest, for, for hold, you know, the, the record for holding your breath is underwater? And, um, and I, you know, I, I've timed myself and I maybe got up to like 45 seconds or a minute, you know? And then I was like, oh. Uh, and, and we thought, you know, it's probably like eight minutes, nine minutes, something like that. It's not, it's significantly longer than that. It's something like 20 minutes or something like that. And if you think about it, you're like, really? 
seriously, you can do that. It's like, yeah, yeah, people do it. It's like, well, there's, there's wow. a thing actually called, I think static apnea, but they breathe oxygen beforehand. So they, they fill their body with, and, and David Blaine, actually, if you want a really cool Ted talk, David Blaine from New York, he did this thing where he held his breath underwater for 17 minutes and he was on Oprah. And he tells the story of what was actually happening to it. If you if you want to watch a cool video, it's fascinating. Uh, and he talks about all the things that was happening in his head, all of them. Yeah, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack, and my heart rate was going up. And he just he he walks you through his whole psychology of it. And yeah, it's it's he did seventeen minutes and something on Oprah Live. It's, it's yeah, phenomenal. I, I I did not see the I did not see the interview, but I saw David Blaine. I followed some of his stuff. Uh, in times past, and I heard that he had done that. It's a, it's fascinating the, the things that we actually can do when we, you know, you know, put our minds to it, uh, in you know, simple phraseology. But very little is holding us back. Most of it is most of it is made up. What one of the really cool things, and and you can you can look this up. There's a scientific study where they were checking how much people would, how soon people would give up. So they, they have a, a method of saying, and I, I don't remember all the details of the study. They have a method of saying how far you can go, uh, how far yeah. you can push yourself. And they found out people start giving up at like 40% of their maximum effort. Like mm -hmm. that's where it starts. And it's like even top athletes give up at like 60% of what's possible. And there's, there's reasons for that, right? Because if you go to 80% and you get too far, you can actually like have a heart attack and die. So your body yeah. wants to back you off before you get into a danger zone. But it backs you off way sooner. Way, way sooner than, than you need to. Than you need to. And that's the stories. It's, uh, it, goes, it goes, I think, sometimes back to the stories that we tell ourselves in our minds. And, that, and the, the critic sometimes, uh, and the, the, you know, the little voice that pops up that is there sometimes for our safety and was necessary at one point in time is no longer necessary. You know, and I don't know. It's so, super complicated and interesting. I know we're, we're way over our time here. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, you're fun. totally fine. It has been a great conversation, which is why we can we need to continue this. I, I, I love this. I'm going to pick up a copy of your book here. I'm assuming I'm going to go out a line here, a limb here, and say I can pick it up on Amazon. True? Yeah, for sure. Okay, there we go. Great. So the alignment quotient. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, I don't know Chris very well. We have known each other now for a little over an hour, uh, and I do no research, zero on uh, the people who are on Coffee with Humans, uh, and I. It's, it's just, it's having coffee with a stranger who becomes a friend. And I, I count you among my friends, Chris, this is a fascinating conversation and a fascinating uh, topic. So thanks for your journey that has brought you to uh, now the North of France, uh, enjoying <laughs> beer and fries and mussels. <laughs> and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you as well. It's so good, man. Well, pick up, uh, pick up Chris's book on Amazon, The Alignment Quotient or head to thealignmentquotient.com. We will catch you next time on Coffee with Humans. One of the things I love about Coffee with Humans are the raw conversations I get to have meeting new people just like you. If you or someone you know should be on Coffee with Humans, go to coffeewithhumans.com. Remember, the only rule is no sales calls. This has been Coffee with Humans. Subscribe to get updates or click to have coffee with me. Coffeewithhumans.com.